Welcome back, everybody, to the Real Weirdos Podcast, and we hope you're doing okay today. I'm Jesse, along with my co-hosts Alex and Jeff, and we are the Real Weirdos, two and a half white men with English degrees who talk about movies for way too goddamn long. Today we're talking about Misery, a 1990 film from director Rob Reiner. But first, we have had another letter, gentlemen. Oh boy. Yeah, another actual Again? letter in the mailbox. Uh, Again. So soon, the postage system is so fast. Well, we're, we're starting to get these uh, almost every day now, so I'm having to be choosy, right? A lot of people, a lot of people in the industry listen to this podcast. and um, So, Kurt Russell has written in. Oh. Yeah, he was a big fan of our Bone Tomahawk discussion, and he thought maybe we could workshop some future movie projects for him. All right. Let's do I love it. Kurt Russell. I mean, as long as I mean, there's a, there's a stipulation that he's in every movie. He has to have an increasingly larger mustache. Yeah, for mm. sure. Well, I like, think the idea here is by two hundred percent the next movie. But if we like multiple, maybe he'll take that under consideration. Hopefully, and, you know, but it yeah, has hopefully. to be like massive. There has to be a canyon in between the sizes <laughs> of the mustache. So by the end, it's just dragging well, on the ground. Maybe we can we can fold that in here. If we okay. like multiple, we could be like, first this one where you grow out grow it out this much and just increasingly large size mustache until okay. it's, you know, enveloping we'll the world. Um, So we had four here. I, I ixnayed one because we actually workshopped it last week when we talked about Robert Pattinson. Mm. And that was Stargate 2. Then mm. similarly to how I don't want Pattinson in a Roland Emmerich film, I don't want any actor I like in a Roland Emmerich film. So it's just Roland Emmerich stop making films. Yeah. Take up yeah, fishing. Just take up fishing, man. Go catch some bass. These these disaster movies are uh they're pretty played out. So we Ixnade Stargate 2 right off the bat, but these other ones are interesting. So number one. John Carpenter is considering coming out of his filmmaking retirement for one last stab at a Snake Plissken film, with Kurt Russell, obviously, reprising his role. So it's set in the near future, and the idea is that there's no rescue mission per se, like an escape from LA, an escape from New York, but it's just Snake Plissken trying to get out of America because the country has degenerated into a toxic hellscape of shootings, hunger, Economic inequality, predatory and exclusionary politics, racial violence, all these things that have culminated into a sweeping culture war. Pliskin, Kurt Russell has had enough and wants to escape. What do we think? Yeah, easy. I have some timeline issues that we would need to address. Mm, what do you mean? Well, what year does Escape from New York take place? Like 1999? I don't remember. It like is, we're talking it is the future year, dystopian. Yeah, we're talking the, the those year original in the films. Movie. Worst future dystopian. I think, but yeah, they were like I, I don't, future that's already passed. Like was it like two thousand eight or something? Like I don't know. Like I'm pretty sure the year in that movie was not quite that far off from when it was made. No, so this is also future dystopian. But I mean, reading it, it kind of sounds like today. 
So that's the thing, right? Is it it kind of plays into like almost satire at this point. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Carpenter is aware of that per se, but I mean, is it I escape mean, think... from America or escape from Earth? So yeah, so the title of the film is Escape from America. Yeah. It's great because it's like also kind of the antithesis of coming to America. So there could be a play on that somewhere where it's like Eddie Murphy's just like on the ground as the rocket goes away or whatever the plane. He's just like, what? I spent all this time. I just spent 20 years making a sequel to get back here. <laughs> yeah. Snake Plissken finally like hijacks a boat to get out of here. And like Eddie Murphy's just on the shore like, hey, what about me? Where do we think his destination is? Like, is he escaping to Canada or is he escaping to Mexico? Hmm. It doesn't it doesn't specify. This, where would uh, Snake Plissken does not specify. Mexico. Be the most, I'd Mexico. like to know where Snake Plissken would be the most comfortable so he no longer has to be escaping in his life anymore. Mexico. Because <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he's escaped enough. What are you running from, Snake? Is it the fact that your first name is Snake? Uh, <laughs> no. That's the one thing to embrace. That's the best part of all. I don't know. I think that, I mean, first name Snake, that just screams bad childhood, broken home to me. Well, you look at his character. I mean, he's a prisoner. He's a felon, right? Yeah. He's like a legendary felon. Everybody knows who he is no matter where he goes. They're like, you're Snake Plissken. I thought you were dead. (laughs) With no setup at all. (laughs) Yeah, no setup at all. I guess we did too. (laughs) Escape from L.A. is particular. See, this is the thing about the timeline is like, Escape from L.A. is particularly terrible in almost every facet except for the character of Snake Plissken. So I feel like the logic of the timeline is kind of like whatever at this point. I don't know. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The whole aspect of anything with these movies is whatever. I don't yes. blame them. So Escape from New York, the, the, the future, the dystopian future that, that Snake is escaping from is 1997. Okay. Yeah. yeah dude. <laughs> so it's yeah, got a lot so worse. Perfect. perfect. Yeah. It'd be that great. Whole if, New York thing, like that's oh, like an ideal now. Everything's worse than that. I got it. I got it. I've had the stroke it. of inspiration, folks. A okay. stroke. So Snake has escaped from LA, right? Mm-hmm. And he goes okay. into hiding. Whatever, you know, we we call that timeline what it is. Now he comes back, but it's just today, like regular. Um, but he acts like as if it is 200 times worse than the murder rape dystopia that he had just came from and escaped prior twice. So it's just like he goes around and he's just like walking around Wall Street like watching investors like swindle people and he's like no! It must be stopped! And he, he just like, like, goes over and start like 80s action roundhouse kicking all these like <laughs> investors in the face. He sees yeah, like one yeah, TikTok, loses his fucking mind. <laughs> exactly. He like, scrolls TikTok for an hour yeah. and he's like well, we I must escape go. this reality. And he just starts killing go. everybody to free them from the reality. Just that indiscriminately. Created. Just anyone on yeah, the just street. Everybody. He kills everybody. <laughs> he becomes a supervillain called Snake Plissken, which just <laughs> totally yeah. makes sense. The thing about Snake Plissken's character is that he was never, he never really cared that much about saving people or like what was going on, really. He just did it to like get the government off his back, essentially. I think mostly he just wanted to be left alone to be a criminal, <laughs> honestly. So he's David Koresh, so, basically. So it already works. He's like, Snake Plissken is basically Waco or Ruby Ridge, right? He's just this guy that's trying to get Waco? the government just to fucking like lay off his back, just hyper libertarian. Uh, See, I was thinking he was coming back into LA, 
but it's like he wakes cute. up in traffic falling down style like michael douglas mm. and it's just like sitting there and it's like <laughs> wait what i gotta get out yeah. i gotta get out what if snake plissken is q from the bond hey, q from star trek no q from q bond? Oh, Q. Oh, QAnon. <laughs> it's amazing that both of you didn't. That is that was the best. Because like, folks, we're well, uh, we're in a Discord my call knowledge and we can of see Jeff. each other. <laughs> so it's really great. I'm just seeing both I, of those reactions. I imagined him in my brain for a moment as Q in Next Gen. It's just Snake Plissken's head, <laughs> just like talking to Picard <laughs> on uh, on uh, what is it, Delancey's body? Just fucking. Yeah, <laughs> dude, I was thinking Judy Dench's body. Like he's Q from James Bond or that's whatever. That's not even Q. That's M. Oh shit! Is there a Q in James Bond? Q, Q yeah, he's is, the, um, gadget the guy. guy. Who's the he's the tech guy. Oh, okay, yeah. Just imagine yeah. really old Kurt Russell, like American West cowboy, just like handing James Bond like a here's revolver. Your shit, James Bond. Yeah, here's your I snake shooter. Q. It blows up, you dumb fuck. <laughs> yeah, Go see, that's another one. Uh, that, this is not on the guys. list, but but Kurt Russell, if you want to play. Q and James Bond movies from now on. I'm fucking down with that. Just play it as Snake Plissken, essentially. Uh, shit. <laughs> or just, um, or just so, Kurt Russell. <laughs> or just Kurt Russell. Yeah. So I think Escape from America. Man, there's a lot of. You could go a lot of ways with this. I think. I think we might need to see like a, a more cohesive story treatment in order to to give our total thumbs up or thumbs yeah. down. But I think we agree it has potential. Also, mm-hmm. could it could lean towards the the woke and dope crowd too much and become a pandering piece of shit. Not if John Carpenter is doing it, I don't think. You know? I don't know. Yeah. Has John but Carpenter anyway. ever been known to pander? Uh, nah, he just does what he wants. Sometimes right. it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but okay, moving on to number two of three. This one's interesting. So it's an untitled Jim Morrison future biopic. So the idea with this one is that a 57-year-old Jim Morrison at the turn of the millennium looks back on his life. So as we all know, Jim died the tender age of 27 back in 1971. So there's a lot of potential, I think, for a good screenwriter in particular to theorize on the life that Jim Morrison could have had. And Jim and Kurt Russell as like an old Jim Morrison, I could totally see it. Oh, yeah. He really looked like him back in, like, the Big Trouble in Little China days, you know? Do we oh, just, like, yeah. need another Jim Morrison story, though? We've only had, like, one. Yeah, but, like, had the cares? doors. I mean... You know, like, it's like would, would he... He would have aged, like, every other aged rocker that survived today. Like, he would have become Jimmy Page. Just, like, old, fat, and irrelevant. No, dude. He, he was in Paris, right? So he becomes, like, a secret agent for Interpol. Then you find out he's actually just Snake Plissken instead of Jim Morrison the whole time. And you just revert oh, back. Oh, wait. Wow. We're like tying this all the way yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all just one mega movie. But oh, I agree. Wow. With, oh, my God. I agree wow. with Jess. We're signing Kurt Russell the, uh, up for something way more The intense. Kurt Russell cinematic universe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he did like, he did kind of have, Jim Morrison kind of got into that like bearded, like long hair look towards the end. And yeah, Kurt Russell definitely. could definitely play like a rugged, like, Imagine him going to his grave every day in like Paris, just drunk as fuck after sitting out at the cafes all night. Right. And just being like, <laughs> yeah, that's me. The other thing is like, that's it's me. like it's a Tupac second... kind of thing, right? He's secretly alive the yeah. whole time. The problem is that this is the second film. So his mustache will have now increased by at least 400% from mm-hmm. the first mm. film. That's okay. So 
Jim, Jim Morrison, Morrison had a big old beard going on. But, but we're talking at this point, it's not a beard, it's a mustache. He has okay. to shave all the rest of his face every every day. Okay. And well, that's part of the disguise. By this time, I mean, I guess you'd be right. You, If you saw some like dude walking around Paris who's bloated old and fucking with like a four-foot Fu Manchu, you'd be like, <laughs> that is in no way Jim Morrison. It would never cross your mind. Yeah, it would be like, yeah. that guy's homeless Gandalf. So, it would. I'd just, still want to talk to that guy and figure I mean, out his story. So, yeah, I might be a bigger fan of this just on the surface here than you guys, because I might be a bigger Morrison fan, bigger Doors fan. But I think the idea of like theorizing what, like, somebody who had major impact on the world would have done had they lived much longer, and doing that in a cinematic context is an interesting thought experiment, right? Because I, I don't know if we've ever seen that before. Hmm. And like uh, this could be an interesting venue to explore like a different kind of storytelling. It's like, you know, future biopic. It's just I don't know. There I find is, it interesting. There is it might be a European film or like a TV show where it's about like Hitler and he wakes up in modern like day Europe, and it's like about how he has to just like go about and just become a normal person. It's really. It's like darkly humorous, right? But it sounds almost like a Mel Brooks film. Yeah, <laughs> you could definitely take that in like a very strange direction, though. Like, what if, what if Mao didn't die, or some shit like that? You know, like yeah, what is I would. Like, if it, I didn't. He just had to come to America and like get a job waiting tables or like cooking chicken. <laughs> I'd explore this theory with <laughs> anyone else but Jim Morrison. I I just no? don't. I just don't care about like what he would have. I don't think he would have done anything. I think he would have aged, like I said, like every other rocker did. They just stopped doing drugs and realized mm. that was cool. And well, then... but what they could have done and what you can write that they had done are yeah, very different, different things. Yeah, but that's you know? not... Then you're inter- entering like a level of fan. I, like with a biopic, especially something like that, I, I would like a level of believability to it. Mm. So who would you choose then? Like if uh, let's bring in Kurt Russell as well. So let's okay. modify this. Yeah, we you have, have to Kurt, make sure Russell Kurt Russell play somebody who who died long okay. ago that Kurt Russell could play today. Okay, that's a legitimately difficult question. That is a very specific question. It is. <laughs> well, uh, I have to first think rolling of, with the punches here. Yeah, I, I have to first go. think of. Like what? Right, William this, Henry this, this Harrison, like Mussolini. Okay. William Henry Harrison, I think, like refused to wear an overcoat as his inauguration, got cold, pneumonia, and then died. So like, yeah. <laughs> wasn't the guy that invented the toilet? Was was it? I don't know. Fuck. No, that was no. someone else. We don't have history was, degrees, people. Was he? A, was he? No, a, I'm just a, conflating episodes of South Park. That's all. Yeah, that's, really was he <laughs> oh, that's where I get Alex? most of my history from. What's up, Jesse? Uh, was he going to be a president? I'm. Just, he. Yeah. I don't like know who he, that is. It was like at his inauguration. Like he was okay. the president, and he was like, "I'm not going to wear a coat. It'll look like a weak fucking move." And then he died. It'll of look pneumonia. like a millennial. Yeah, exactly. That's, Before millennials. That's amazing. I, know. I mean, talk about toxic masculinity at its peak. Like you're about to be president of the United States, <laughs> and you're still in a time where that actually meant something. Yeah. <laughs> right. like, what year was that, Alex? Was that? Uh, when was I think that? it was twenty or nineteenth century. Okay, nineteenth yeah. century. Wow, or in the way yeah, back. It was machine. a while back. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. It was um, back when like he was president of like eight people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think we'll put a pin in this one. I, I think the untitled Jim Morrison future biopic is interesting, but I do take your point as well where it's like, 
there's a level of sort of fan fiction going on there, and it's yeah. also I don't know. It, it'd I be think very niche. You thing. could argue that people only the only people who think Jim Morrison changed the world are the people who are Jim Morrison fans. <laughs> because I don't. I wouldn't say changed the world. I would say it had an impact. You know, well, yeah, I mean, you could argue so did every, but so did every incredible band. Stop diminishing Jim Morrison. You <laughs> I just, I, <laughs> I don't not understand, like, like bros who are super into Jim Morrison. Like, I just don't get it. It's like he it's brought like he was the he, same. He, he brought was a great like a more musician. intellectual level of lyricism to what was like pop rock music at the time, and he like made he was one. Of, they were one of the first for sure. They like he like made. I like the him doors were of the still setting. making music when like the Beatles were like singing about like putting like butter on bread. Well, not even necessarily that because I love the Beatles too. It's just with Jim Morrison and the Doors, they're just so quintessentially like Southern California, LA band. Like when I listen to their music, it just has a vibe to it that is different than like the New Jersey stacks like recordings of like Motown or like Chicago. And it's like it just I don't know, but he definitely brought in the more like oh I read fucking. Robert or William Blake and yeah. you know all the shit like I don't, yeah. I don't know he brought the intellectual well, like sexy poet thing to the stage so English nerds fucking have a big heart on for him I get it now yeah like, so. yes. yeah not I don't want to linger on this too much longer um yeah they definitely no one has ever sounded like them but I digress um Kurt Russell I could see him playing an old Jim Morrison I guess maybe not in this context I don't know it's a little too open. <laughs> Um, but let's move on to this last one here. So it is well known that Kurt Russell has played Santa Claus in a variety of films, and he's considering reprising the role as jolly old Saint Nick in a sequel that I'm sure you guys are gonna love. That's right, it's Christmas with the Cranks 2. As you may or may not recall... In the events of the first film, the entire world seemed to be involved in some form of Christmas cult, resulting in Tim Allen and his family being ridiculed and tormented into celebrating Christmas. It was really quite unsettling, actually. Um, Well, the cult in the sequel is alive and stronger than ever in 2022, and Tim Allen is now an alcoholic recluse. It's up to the townspeople and even Santa Claus himself played by Kurt Russell, to show him the error of his ways. <laughs> Isn't Christmas with the Cranks 2 already a movie? No. Okay. Well, it's about to be. It be. It's in production as we speak. Is it? Oh, well, I guess they're already making it then. Um, I don't know if Kurt Russell is attached or not, but um, what do we think about this? I don't know, like, give me another idea that makes me want to kill myself. <laughs> like, I don't know, I, I, don't, I don't understand, what, this is stupid. This is a dumb idea. Don't fucking reprise stupid fucking movies. This is what dumb and I hate about? you. But Kurt Russell, Russell will be in it. You make me angry. <laughs> uh, Kurt Russell, we know you're listening. Jeff's angry at this. I'm angry at you. I'm angry at this what? idea. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't that's make, right. I didn't write. This. I know what you, you didn't, about? but I'm angry at you for bringing it up. I'm angry <laughs> at you for accepting this letter and bringing this stupid fucking movie back into our lives. Well, when this when this was like, oh, on hey, the you list, hate something you want to be in production of the <laughs> sequel to it. Well, when this was on the list, I knew I had to include it for obvious reasons. We loved doing that episode, you know. I mean, sure. Yeah. Loved is a so, strange way to put so it. So it, it's it's interesting there, right? Because it, it does transform the original idea here into almost like magical realism, right? To use a term that Alex loves, where Santa Claus is actually real. 
and this cult is real. And they're all hell-bent, including Santa Claus himself, <clears throat> on pestering Tim Allen to celebrating Christmas. So... He'd rather just drink. I'm trying to think of like how we would set this up. Are we going to give Tim Allen any type? Like, are we going to give him a machine gun? And then is it him against the Christmas cult and Santa? Is like Kurt Russell going to be the villain? Like, is he the cult leader? Or is like Tim Allen like an old racist? Because then it'd just be, he can just method act it because it would be not far from where he is now. (laughs) Is Tim Allen racist? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Probably. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, I I I remember hearing some shit about him like throwing the N word around. Everyone, um, uh, do some research. Let us know in the comments, or don't, and just like be like me. Uh, <laughs> the, the I'm trying to get some input here. Come on. Or 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 in the comments, just tell me how I'm wrong all the time, and that will equally be engaging. And I'll yeah. and I'll, 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 I'll guarantee to respond to each one of them. I'm a fan of that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like I think we should have him just be a big fat drunk racist. That way, it's like boom, fits slides right into the role, and then. He Santa Claus has to convince him that minorities are worth their their you know <laughs> oxygen that they breathe, and then that and then that would be the movie. I'm I'm quoting Tim Allen here. Dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. Oh my god. I'm quoting the character. Like okay? so, I'm Kurt not... Russell could show Tim Allen, hey, you could be fat, white, Christian, Judeo centered, and still be a good guy. You don't have to be racist. Exactly. Right? But this kind of turns the original sort of like axis on its head, right? It tilts the axis because in the first film, you sympathize with Tim Allen because like he just wants to not celebrate Christmas and this weird cult is like burning crosses on his lawn. (laughs) Like, you know? Well, he would be the one burning the crosses. It does flip it then, right? Like It flips the script. Did he get converted at the end of the first one though? I think so. I, you know, honestly, to, to to being a Christmas <laughs> the Christmas weirdo, clan to the, to the honestly, grand dragon, the the um the fan theories that we concocted, I say fan theories, the theories we concocted that like were our own plot lines during that episode are more in my brain than what happened in the actual movie. I don't remember. Like what's in my brain, it's like Tim Allen going on a rampage and killing everybody, or like hanging from the Christmas lights from the I from the fucking house. His like old white fat neighbor that was always giving him that like look, just like oh. you think you could run away from Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like now he's like super old, like he's in a wheelchair, yeah. decrepit. He's like, you think you can run away from progressives, <laughs> don't you? Oh God. <laughs> mm. Oh, I don't know about any element of this. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> good. I hope it doesn't make it in. It'll be a good summer blockbuster for sure. Summer <laughs> Christmas with the cranks. Yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, it's like an action the movie. Way you said summer. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh all right. So out of these three, what do we think? I mean, none. They're all escape from put America. Put them all in the put them all in the barrel. Escape from, from America the has barrel. the most potential to like really grind at the gears of just society and provoke a reaction. So I'm gonna go with that one. Yeah, and plus, like, uh, sort of redeeming the trilogy ended on a good note instead of Escape from L.A. Mm-hmm. I'd, yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested to see that. I think that that'd be my strongest out of the three. Jeff, yeah. not into any of these. <laughs> no, I think I think the first one's the most competent idea out of all three of them. <laughs> I think I think it's gen- I think as Kurt Russell's mustache lengthened throughout the movies, uh, reality 
as well started to stretch and we uh, we kind of arrived at an area there that I can't quite get behind. Well, we so ended I'm with Santa sure. Claus, so that's so the longest sure. mustache of all. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'll go with the first one. <laughs> all right, Kurt Russell, let us know what you think, but uh, we're going with Snake Plissken, baby. Escape from America. Um, all right, well, with that out of the way, let's move on to our film today. Um, as I said earlier, today we're talking about Misery, year 1990 film from director Rob Reiner, the goo man himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it tells the story of Psycho 2, the Kathy Bates Motel, <laughs> starring hilarious reaction shots of James, Can- James Can's face. <laughs> uh, Alex, this was your pick, so tell us what's going on with Misery. Um, yeah, so I chose Misery this week because, like, I feel like it's less thematically brilliant on the surface than some of the other films we've been talking about and we will talk about in the future. Um, so much so that it, like, it almost toes the line on Friday night TV blockbuster. Um, but I felt like it was always a tad underrated. And it was always when it's suggested to people to watch, it's a little half cooked. Um, My summation is that Misery is like a fantastically made movie, both in regards to mechanical aspects and plot, where it's just so originally unnerving that Stephen King had to write it, right? Um, And it stirs up so little controversy, I feel like, in the film world. It's such a generally accepted, just like, yeah, this is a good movie, that I feel like it hasn't been given its due diligence and when it comes to film discussion, especially with just regular movie-going audiences. I think it's subtle, I think it's clean, and it's tight enough to make the message very sharp and severe. And it's impossible to like deviate from the claustrophobia and the fear of the house in the middle of nowhere. And the film combines elements of different horror genres and feels like it could easily be like a primordial template or precursor for horror films that make us squeamish today, like Hostel, Saw, Stalker films, things like in that vein. Things where you're trapped with a psychopath. Exactly. Those kind of movies. Yeah. Yeah. When did you first see it? Ooh. Not close to when it came out because I was a tiny little baby. But it'd have been like one. <laughs> probably like I was in like sixth or seventh grade, so I was like ten, eleven, or twelve. Oh damn. And it was like one of the first times I had seen a horror movie my mom was like showing me this horror movie that on its surface was like it didn't have any of those normal conventions right and I didn't really understand what psychological thriller meant then so I was like where are the monsters where's the ghost you know and when I watched the movie as a child I remember just being like blown away because I was like I just I just didn't know you could make a, a story like this yeah, we've talked before about the sort of borderline between like what differentiates a horror film from, I don't know, something a little darker, a little more twisted. And it's always the human element. Yeah. When the human is the monster, it's always the potential for it to be legitimately horrifying is magnified a thousandfold because humans are more fucked in the head yeah. and capable of terrible things than any monster we've been able to conjure in all of recorded history (laughs) Um, but before i jump into all that uh (laughs) jeff this is your first time seeing misery right yeah what'd you think i really enjoyed this film um i definitely think it's a movie you know it's it does it's not breaking any barriers or anything like that but it's tight it's clean it has really solid themes coming from 
the fact that the source material is a book by a very famous writer, Stephen King. So you have this kind of, not breaking the fourth wall, but almost meta-narrative going on with this idea of like a very popular writer who's known for something, having fans that only want him to do this one thing and him wanting to branch out and do maybe something different. And we all know Stephen King had a lot of pen names. So there, to me, I felt a lot of themes of uh, kind of writer's angst and writer's frustration <clears throat> coming through in this movie and then just kind of hyperbolized to the degree that it is in this really creepy... I mean, we'll talk about Kathy Bates in more detail. We will but, talk about Kathy Bates, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, just incredibly creepy performance by Kathy Bates just really drives home this, this character that not only is terrifying, but you want to see stopped. Uh, I have not hated a character or a villain this much since Game of Thrones. Uh, I've not wanted to see a character get their comeuppance more since Game of Thrones. <laughs> and to be honest, we'll talk about the finale, but I'm not so happy with it. I'm not so happy mm, with it. But, uh, interesting. But overall, yeah, tight movie, really great, um, and genuinely disturbing. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool performance. We will get into that. But we have touched on the Stephen King element, which warrants some discussion. Um, not only does it have those echoes of, of the writerness, Stephen King likes to have that sort of meta element in a lot of his stories. He even appears himself in the Dark Tower series, mm -hmm. for fuck's sake. <laughs> that, that series gets bananas. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but anyway, the, the Stephen King nature in this one, it's also interesting. I was reading that. He came out like 20 years later and said that there was a meta element that fed into this, not only in the fact that like the character, the Kathy Bates character is a, a sort of amalgam of his, his scariest fans, which when you're when you're that famous, like it's a legitimate concern that people are going to be really creepy and stalkery to you mm -hmm. to, to one degree or another. But it was also written as an analog for his own drug abuse, drug and alcohol addiction and feeling trapped by those things to the point where they literally like hobble him and he can't like leave the room of his addiction, if you will. Um, but then you get into the filmmaking elements and the story beats and those feel very, very, very Stephen King. Um, especially like, I think we've all probably seen a lot of those like eighties and nineties adaptations of Stephen King. And this feels like one of the best versions of that where it just has that tone it has that tone. It has that that music going on, um, and that's another point I want to talk about. Is like the way the music changes this film. Did you like it? Did I like it? Oh yeah, I love this film. I think it's really good. Um, speaking on the like '80s '90s music, that's something that sort of dates the movie, in in like an interesting way, but not in a bad way, right? It feels very late '80s, early '90s. Like the score evokes almost like. It's almost like a little bit magical, like you're watching Poltergeist or something like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it just you just know. But I was thinking about it, like if this was made today, you could make this movie really, really creepy oh, yeah. by stripping out the score. Yeah. You know, because the score, the score is mostly what makes it feel like a movie. Absolutely. But yeah, like like I was saying, those little Stephen King elements as well. Sorry, let me just finish this thought, and then you guys can jump in. But like the the sheriff is the most Stephen King character ever. <laughs> yeah. You see him, and you just immediately know he's going to die hundred <laughs> percent you get that shining you're like you're the groundskeeper yep, yep. <laughs> like you're gonna just, come in to help and you're gonna get you got he, Stephen King always has the lovable old guy 
you know, like the the guy who's just like trying to trying to keep it all together, trying to trying to really be the one who's who's got his nose to the grindstone, figuring it out, and it's like always the one who dies. Always. Yeah. All those it's little great. moments where he's like he picks up on the the writing, like the little writing element. He's like, Oh, yeah. I remember that looks it up and sees that she said that thing. You know? Fuck. Very Stephen King. It's all kind of elements. Stephen King always has this level of like well, I mean, of course, suspension of disbelief, but like this level where like you kind of these jumps in logic with his narratives or these jumps in in discovery are so categorically king where like a character will just come upon this like serendipitous thing that then will now like that is now turning point one in the now we're in like the climax of the narrative like he's very structured in his style and I love that because I do actually really enjoy Stephen King but another element that I think he's touching on here is like this doesn't this movie kind of feel like a dime store novel Mm-hmm. At times, like, like a misery novel, that, right? Yeah, like a misery yeah. novel, or like you know, when you would go through the checkout at, fu- at Food Max when you were a kid, yeah. And they would have those like you know two three dollar romance novels, and it would always be like some Fabio looking yeah. motherfucker <laughs> on the front, and then you would like, hit, but like their faces were cut out. It had like a hole in the yeah. cover, remember, and you would open it, and then the actual picture would be inside. Yes, these were like these dime store novels, romance novels, but like this movie had that sheen to it. And because the author in the film is that type of author, he makes those like romance novels. To me, that speaks to a little bit of brilliance in filmmaking to be able to kind of tie all of these, these, these feelings together with no central narrative structure. Mm-hmm. Do you think the movie has that sheen, or do you think the story has that sheen? I do think you mean the movie specifically. I think the story. Well, I think it's because Stephen King is that also kind of that type of author, at least viewed by some of his fans as that, or by some of his critics as that. More, I think yeah. more so. Sure, is like King is the dime a dozen, eight books a year. You know, a thousand of them stack in the discount counter kind of author i think i see a lot of criticisms of him like that but and that's true he does write a lot of just stuff that gets forgotten yeah and that's fine and but i think a lot of that is being explored in paul's character is like this person that is feeling like am i a fraud because this is the only type of writing that i do Mm -hmm. yeah he wants to break away from doing the misery novels by the way i love the tie-in like of of the misery that whole just the whole the title of the film like echoing in these different ways right where it's the the title of the novel but then it's also just you know obviously the tone of the film it's like the whole thing is about misery it's about being you know chained up by this psychopath lady <laughs> yeah just, just to finish i just my idea is basically like the the novel has this concept and then the filmmaker was really able reiner was really able to capture that aesthetic and then implant it on the film itself like this film feels like like the jacket for the vhs would be that same dime store cover mm-hmm. novel it feels right yeah. in that pocket. I was going to say that the reason that I say this movie is like fantastically made is because I feel like all of these pieces fell together like perfectly. And I feel like Rob Reiner and Stephen King are a very good pair when it comes to adaptation. Like it seems to me one of the most unadulterated like Stephen King stories as far as it gets translated to film. Um, and I wanted to 
comment on the meta aspect here because Stephen King is talking about, you know, himself kind of like being a writer and whatnot. I think that it really goes to the heart of what Jesse was saying of imagine you're a horror writer and you've thought and imagined all of these crazy monsters your whole career, your whole life, right? And then you start to like contextualize your own personal story as a writer into like this horror thing. And when Stephen King was writing this, he said like it was kind of like he was genuinely scared while he was writing the story because it felt so close to him and it felt so real. It's not about some fucking clown with a red balloon or anything like that. You know, he's like, <laughs> it felt some like clown alien. Yeah. Some, some fucking crazy like thing. And it's the most, I want to say besides maybe like the shining, it's one of the most adult movies or adult stories that we have from Stephen King where the childish, like juvenile aspect of the 70s and the 80s is just non-existent. And that adds on to this tone of like, this is a miserable, like miserable movie. Um, I will say, I think he also got into a car accident right before he made this film. He, no, it was in 1999. Oh, okay, so it did it. echo that. Luckily he was not kidnapped by a yeah. Kathy Bates analog <laughs> and forced to, forced to rewrite the stand for something. Luckily that did not occur. But it is a really like like drawing back to something that I think you're talking about, um, at least tangentially, is like the reality element, right? This is not fantastical. Like this kind of shit happens. Yeah. Um, maybe it doesn't happen to like p super famous people all the time, but it happens to lesser known people. And if you are famous, especially in the level of fame that Stephen King would have or someone like him. It's a legitimate concern that, like I said, people are going to be fucking weird, mm -hmm. you know? Oh, this could happen to him easily. Yeah. And I'm sure he's not, I'm sure this hasn't happened to him, but I'm sure situations have happened to him that have made him feel scared mm -hmm. and, like, put him in situation. Like, I mean, we're talking Stephen King, arguably, definitely one of the most prolific writers of all time mm -hmm. but also one of the most popular, most writers popular of all time. like just yeah easy but by the fact of the era he's writing in was able to uh, to uh, reach the biggest audience it possibly could uh it's insane and so i mean this is just it i guess i really like this movie because it feels personal and i think that is something that's missing from a lot of king adaptations and sometimes king books where like you don't feel this level of personal touch or personal tie-in with the character with the narrative and now that i know more about the drug addiction now the pills the pills the whole pill thing was very um i felt the one part of the movie that was kind of disjointed mm -hmm. okay because it, it seemed like he wanted them like he needed them like were they pain pills at first i thought they were sugar pills and it was just like a placebo thing mm -hmm. and then i thought like are they sedatives making it so he can't heal like i kept going back to like what's with the pills and now it kind of makes a little more sense with the context I, yeah i don't know if the pills were a direct reference to drug addiction i think it was more of a, a a story beat in order to set up an escape attempt with him trying to poison her with all the pills and the nurse sure, context the pills were red mm -hmm. and yeah red, and color do, do you guys and know mean do you guys know what those pills were did you look up what 
that I thought it was a made was. up. I, I couldn't catch a clear. I tried to Google twice two different things I heard her say, and I couldn't get. Because you see, you see the packaging. I did not. Oh, really? I did not look it up, though. I think no, it I is. didn't. I thought it was just made up drug. I thought it was like made up Vicodin. Or yeah, made up I think it's just oxy. like a painkiller because you have that context that she's like a nurse. And I, that part just makes the film so much scarier to me that she was in like this position of like maternal caring, you know, that she tries to emulate at the beginning of the film. And like, you don't realize how much control sometimes medical professionals or like nurses have over like your well being, especially when you're being held there. Um, but I think it was a painkiller and a sedative that was like supposed to kind of like just drug him into this stupor of like being there. It was either way it didn't make sense because it was a capsule pill which a painkiller would never be in. Yeah. Too, you kind of have to release. like let it go for movie logic purposes because he does need to undo them. And Yeah. Like, so for me thing. well he could crush it too if it was a tablet. Could crush it. But for me I, I don't know I there's too much specific detail around the pills themselves to where I couldn't take my attention away from them as simple just props mm, or tools it. of narrative. The bright red color, the constant kind of close-up, the slicing of the bed and like hiding your medication or like hiding your pills, mm-hmm. something addicts do, you know, to try to stretch it out when you know people are controlling your meds. You know, you're like, okay, well, if someone gives me two Vicodin, I'll take one and hide one, and then I'll have two Vicodin tomorrow. I get really high. It is like, you know? <laughs> it shows like how he's initially like the limits of his control and his like autonomy, right? Like getting the knife and being able to make a slit in your mattress, like doesn't seem like a big deal now, but like if you're being held hostage, you're like, you own that action, right? You're like, I was able to do this with no one telling me to do it. And like, I'm subverted the authority right now. And I think that it does set up that story beat that Jesse was talking about where it's like, you have this culmination where you're like, you know the pills are need to be used in some way. You know he's going to try and do something with them. And you're like, is he going to like take them all like to heal his pain or is he like gonna... I thought that was I thought he was going to try to kill himself. Yeah, like or is like, he going to like, like oh damn. And then you figure out what he's going to do with it. But like I love how this movie steps up this kind of descent into like panic, but it's so rigid and so structured that it all makes perfect sense. The typewriter, oh, yeah. the paper, the pills, the little bobby pin like it all just will culminate into like these props will serve the plot in this very simple way but it's just so clean that like i don't know i just appreciate it when things are made much simpler like that but the the pills could have more of like a metaphorical meaning with the context of the the drug addiction well if you think about like um like that whole kind of the situation of control like you're talking about like the fact that she's in this constant state of control over his his movements what he's doing and then eventually starting to control the narrative of his own books and the course of his own life is is such a horrifying aspect that you don't need to embellish on very much because it's something that's very relatable to all of us is this add uh, this add uh, this idea of someone else controlling your creativity like i think some of the most uncomfortable moments were that moment where it was right after spoiler kill the sheriff and and he's kind of finishing her version of the novel and he's like well like you know i appreciate your criticism but you know this is how i'd that is so uncomfortable to me <laughs> when somebody takes ownership of someone else's creativity and like says well i think it would be better if you did it this way it's like 
but you don't understand the 200 hours of thinking about this that went into this yeah. before <laughs> you heard the 20 seconds I explained to you. So, no, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> but uh, so there was a lot of that and it was all felt really real. And then that relationship never felt um, fantastical. Even after she kills the sheriff, like they're sitting down and he's typing again. And it's like, it didn't feel disjointed, though. It felt like, okay, he's just got to keep playing along. It's the only way he's going to survive. <laughs> so, I don't know. I thought that was a, to the movie's credit. Well, one of the things we've touched on here relates to the core of this film, at least for me. Which is, we talked about the agency that he has in very small ways, right? Like, the, being able to, like, mess with the pills, like, ha get a knife and slit the mattress open. And that feeds into, like I said, the core of it, which is claustrophobia, right? And the fact that this is a movie that mostly takes place in a single room. We've talked about this before, how we admire when films are able to do this. Um, 12 Angry Men is the classic example I'll always bring up. Mm -hmm. But then there are more you know, contemporary examples, Hateful Eight and stuff like that, where it's like a, a, one, a one environment movie almost. You, you do leave with her a little bit. There's there's some moments here or there. But like the emotional core of the movie, you like no matter if the camera leaves, if the movie leaves that room, you're still in that room with James Cann. And that's like a really interesting like psychological thing that I, I think is really interesting when movies explore. And I think it's really well done in this movie, especially drawing in like James Cann's reaction shots, right? Moving on to that. They're fucking hilarious. Yeah. It's they're so perfectly done where it's like you're trying to placate the insane. Right? Like what do you do mm -hmm. when somebody is so wild and so unexpected in what they bring to the table in terms of like talking to you? Like she could just fly off the handle anytime and he's like, "Okay, yeah, 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 that's a great idea. No, I love you too. <laughs> like the moments when she gets insane and you cut to his reactions. I don't know. Even though yeah. the movie was horrifying in a lot of ways, I was like, I texted Alex when I was watching. I was like, this is my worst nightmare <laughs> to be trapped, to be trapped by someone like this and have no agency. But um, I love how you brought that even up. then, though. Yeah, because it's funny because James Conn himself commented on that aspect of the film and he was like the 10th person in choice for mm -hmm. this this cast. There is a whole slew of actors in front of him. William I got Burt. him. We're going to we're going to do those later. <laughs> OK, so he said, okay. I decided to take this role because it was different than the roles I had taken before. You know, he's like Sonny in The Godfather. He's like Brian Piccolo or Gale. No, I think it's Piccolo. Well, he he's like this very like energetic actor, right? And he has like lots of lines of dialogue and things like that. And he's like I feel like this was the first time that being a totally reactionary character would like improve my craft as an actor. So he took it and that is like a measure a way you can measure this movie or a good metric of how scary or tense the situation is is how much sweat James Caan has on his face in different shots. Like at the beginning, it's like a little bit beady cause he's now like in pain. And then it just starts to get like, he starts to figure out what's going on to him. And it's just like, when you're like, Oh shit. Like this movie is fucking yeah. like, he's, he's, he's going down right now, but he was perfect. I loved him in, in the role. I don't think that it could have gone to anyone else. This movie had the most incredible makeup artists. <laughs> like we're not, we don't need to talk. We're not talking like, practical effects here or anything we're just talking not blood splattered normal Kathy Bates at the makeup end. 
but just even like the way they did up his legs when they were all swollen and uh, I mean it's just like ugh and just like I believe that, those were prosthetics yeah yeah, Actually, it's just the, yeah. Uh, yeah, just makeup department, like just this idea of like just dressing up the, him to look so injured mm. was really great. Oh and, yeah, like, I don't. I just there's a lot of close-ups, like you're saying, of like sweat or like really like detailed shots for 1990. Yeah, this movie 90, was made. Yeah, yeah, it's like really high definition shots of like close-ups of like you really like see the different like hairs on Kathy Bates' yeah. face and stuff. It's actually like. <laughs> really tight shots on these actors and they do a great job of changing their aesthetic via makeup like when she, the scene when she comes in and it's raining and she what I would consider that a moment of clarity for a, a psychopath because <laughs> when they kind of have moments where they kind of go like I'm the problem I'm crazy what am I doing and I kind of felt like that was like that moment for her where she was like kind of having this realization like he doesn't love me. Like this is totally insane. What I'm doing here. <laughs> and, do you think? Do you uh, think she had one of those moments? I think that's what that scene was. Mm. Was her? Mm. I mean, obviously, she's still in a level of psychosis because she has like the gun and is threatening him. But it's a very real moment where she's addressing all of this kind of fake shit that had been hanging in the air. You know, she's like, you don't love me. It's kind that you say that you do, but I know you're just saying that. Mm. Like, I understand that you're trapped here and that sucks. Like, she's kind of like giving him all of the realization of the situation, showing him how fully aware of it it is. And it's actually quite horrifying because up until that point, you can be like, okay, well, she believes that she's doing the right thing. But in that moment, she's going, no, no, I know I'm wrong. I know I'm bad. When she tells him, like, (laughs) you're very nice for saying so, but I know that you don't love me. That is like, it goes to what Jesse was saying about like, how can I placate you? What am I supposed to say to you? If you don't even believe like your own lies now, like we're all fucked. Like. Yeah, well then like they dress like she's got the wet streaked down hair. Her makeup is like not done. It's a very plain face. Like they, they choose when to highlight aesthetic choices in characters' demeanor and, and their body. And it's so important in a movie that's very dressed down like this, mm-hmm. where it's all about the actors. Yeah, this movie's it's... almost like subtle body language is 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 another character in the movie. It's excellent filmmaking across the board. Um, not yeah, not just with the character, like the actors and the characters, but. I think it, I think you can, it can be overshadowed by the feel of having this like 80s, 90s movie because it definitely has that feel. Mm -hmm. But if you're paying attention to like all these things Jeff is saying or what we're saying about the claustrophobic environment and the utilization of a small space in terms of filmmaking and having it feel dynamic, then it's, it's really well done. It might be the best thing I've seen from Rob Reiner. But but one more element on the, the claustrophobia of the filmmaking. I love it when he finally leaves the room because mm-hmm. you're like going into a whole different world, but it's just five feet away. And I thought that was like a really neat trick, you know, that the movie plays on you. It was just really, really cool. You're, the, the house's layout is as foreign to you as it is to Paul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a super cool aesthetic to, to do because to that point, we haven't seen anything beyond that door. So as he breaches the door and he looks around, you're like, 
Yeah, you're he's the audience. Like, where, where, where would I go? Where's you the are door? Paul. Dude. You are Paul. Yeah. You're 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 exploring along with him. You're like you're no further than he is. You know, in his and understanding of this. That is so key in a horror movie, a true thriller, is to be able to seat every audience member in a in a believable position. And that's why I think modern horror sucks. It's because it's all about like grandiose monsters and shit that comes out of walls. And it's like, all right, cool. Well, I don't believe in any uh, of that shit. There's <laughs> a lot of good. There's a lot of good horror these days. I think thrill. I think there's a lot of good thrillers still today. But I think something like this, which is, a, is like the quintessential thriller. I mean, how many times? I I happy I remember this because I want to ask you guys this. How many times have we seen this movie spoofed? I mean, I've seen this this narrative spoofed so many times. Always Sunny did it. Mm-hmm. South Park's done it. Like the idea of like the super fan mm-hmm. capturing mm-hmm. you and like controlling your narrative and your story. And like I almost remember like direct almost quotes from this movie and other like I've just felt like I've seen this movie spoofed so many times. Yeah, to that point, it is worth noting that there are films that have touched on similar themes throughout the years that were pretty popular. Um, like I have it, I have one of these open actually, probably forgotten at this point because it was 1962. But there's a movie I really love uh, with Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, actually called Whatever Happened to Baby Jane where Betty, their sisters, but Betty Davis is, like, insane and um, traps Joan Crawford in a room and, like, tries to overtake her life, essentially. So that's, like, possibly a progenitor to this, at least cinematically, mm-hmm. but storytelling as well. But, but yeah, it does... You're right, Jeff. It does not have, like, the pop culture resonance that something like this movie did. I wasn't... I mean, we were too young to sort of, like... measure this exactly in the way that we can measure the impact of the matrix or something like that because that's more in our like timeline wheelhouse but but i think you're right in that this probably had like a pretty big impact because yeah i don't know i don't know how many stories dealt with this specific thing and did it so well and like kathy bates won the oscar yeah it's not even like that they copy the story or like someone was using it as a spiritual uh predecessor it's just more like the themes presented are so uh, digestible and and presented in such a way that are easy to to bring in and easy to understand. Relatable, right? Relatable. We Thank can you. all relate that, to the fear of this that, movie. That it's been be able to be used. I, I I mean, legitimate spoofs. Like I I remember seeing in South Park like this scene of someone trapped in a bed with a typewriter and like someone standing over them in like a nurse's smock and everything. Like I've seen this shit spoofed before. But the also I mean, and and, and I'm wondering if you guys agree. Like other movies that aren't quite this format but still take on this type of feeling. Like one movie jumped out to me immediately was Fear. Marky Mark. Fear, 1996. That movie was one of the first thrillers that I saw as a kid. I saw it in 96. I'm pretty sure it had like j- just come on to like VHS or whatever. So maybe it was like 97 because that took a while. Um, and I remember the scene. I mean, the, him hitting his chest. I mean, I remember these scenes so clearly. And I have these same feelings with this movie. These same kind of correlations of this I don't know this this type of focused thriller that has the same even almost has the same music beats these high strings these maintained high strings that kind of just 
go out through an entire scene that drone in the back. I don't know. It's no. just something I'm pointing out. No, it's yeah. Nothing. So I'm not really trying to make a point here. I brought up Hostel and like Saw movies and Stalker films like that. So like Fear yeah. falls Fear. directly yeah. into that. Film. Cape yeah. Fear too falls like yeah. directly into like this another human being because of some slight or transgression that they viewed against you is like slowly carving away your autonomy and trying to like control your life. And this film just emphasizes it more for me, the feeling more because you're in that room. Right, like you're yeah. just like you're in this bedroom. But, like, yeah. it's it's so interesting because I've yeah. the reason that I said that was at the beginning was like I felt the energy or like the spirit of this film or like the essence in so many other things that have come after it that I'm I always wonder like I'm like why yeah. is this why is this movie not talked more about like a cornerstone or like a landmark? But you could go back to even movies like Rear Window and be like this that movie influence this one right almost directly oh for sure uh so rob reiner when he was making this movie watched all of hitchcock's movies Oh. and while this while this obviously is not quite as you know classical and good as a as a classic hitchcock movie it's you can definitely tell the influence and it's definitely like a movie that I don't know. I think he did a very good job in emulating the hitchcockian sort of feel you know Mm -hmm. i think he did a great job yeah yeah, I totally agree. This had that like, like almost the fear and pregnant silence that Hitchcock has, that is so unique to his films. I I think this movie captured that. There are scenes where it's just dead silence, mm-hmm. like, and you can feel like this just total void around that room, like as if that room only exists for the sole purpose of of keeping him there. Dude, That's it. Some of those pauses. Between like, the room is the room is the monster. I'm telling dude, you, dude. That door. So there are shots with the door when um, it swings open and she walks into the room. Right, like there are different times. Yeah. Sometimes it opens gently. She comes in with her little tray of tea and food and crumpets. Or just bangs. Or like just in there. it's like a stormy, rainy night and the door just swings open and the camera does this thing where they place it on the bed and they tilt it so like. It's like when you wake up from being just woken up in the middle of the night and you're in like REM sleep and you're like, your vision is like skewed. You have like no idea where sounds are coming from. And it does that so well because you're just like, oh God, here she is again. Like she's coming in. It's like the room is the monster. The door is it's like gaping mall. Yeah. She is like the pestilence that spits out. You're just like, ugh. I uh, I had to laugh a few times at how some of the most simplistic jump scares ever really got me in this movie. Where it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, totally. not even, it's not even the door. It's like he'll just wake up and look over and boom, Kathy Bates. And you're like, ah, go away, And then you Kathy get mad Bates. at yourself. You're yeah, like, God you're damn like, it. Why like, did I course. fall for that? <laughs> it's like it's hard to get me with those, but this movie did. It's, it's Yeah, it's, it's very psychological. Dude, those pauses. I think it's... it's one of the most interesting things we talk about the moments of silence, it's like the only real thing that makes this feel super movie movie ish, except for some of those like Stephen King story beats is the music. Like I'd be very interested to see like an even more stripped down modern version of this without a lot of music. Dude. Like it would just be oh, so yeah. like this, this movie could be so much more unsettling yeah. if it didn't have that score. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I like the score. I like that. It timestamps it into that late nineties, early nineties aesthetic. We grew up watching those movies. Yeah. It's a nostalgia thing for us when movies feel like that. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's my point on that one. 
Dude, the pauses in between their dialogue when like she'll ask him a question or something and you're like, dude, Sheldon, you have to answer this correctly, please. Like, don't fuck this up. Don't say something that is going to set her off the rails or like, and you never know as an audience member. You don't know. You're You're afraid. You're like, what do you say? So I I think this is, I wanted to say, do you guys ever, do you guys have echoes or like thematic elements of like abusive relationships in here? Do you think someone could, could make that relevant connection? Or link if they were watching the film i think you could sure. make a connection to a lot of different things if you wanted to like in the same way that it functions as an analog of um substance abuse you could make it about kind of abuse in in a lot of different ways if you wanted to like put that narrative on top of it mm-hmm. you know what do you think jeff um, I mean, yeah, that could be read into. I think that's something that's kind of just uh, organically happens because yeah. of the nature of the, their two relationship. I don't think it's something that's uh, directly being addressed or is thematically. I don't think it's overt to yeah. the theme. Yeah, I think it's just something that can definitely be derived because this is an abusive relationship. It's a different type of abusive relationship, mm-hmm. but I think that we're all kind of talking about the same thing, which is is something I think we should just touch on real quick, which is. I mean, we've touched on a little bit, but Kathy Bates' performance is unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Let's get into these performances. (laughs) Jesus. uh, I mean, really just her specifically. Like, everyone else was great. Everyone else did their job. And James Cann definitely was the second best. But Kathy Bates scared me in a way I wasn't expecting and made me hate her in a way I could never thought possible. Dude, Dude, uh, the visceral, like, feeling I had when he finally brains her with the typewriter over, I was like, ugh! I was like, get out of there! I, I was like, yes! Yeah. I felt kind of bad at, like, the animal, like, rage I felt, you know? <laughs> so so you're, you're, you're touching on an idea that is why people don't like Game of Thrones, is that people the people who are critics against that show say they don't like it because they don't like how it makes them want people to die in horrible ways right because they great create such awful villains that you're like like to me and i and i'm not embarrassed or ashamed of this at all i was totally let down by how she died Mm -hmm. because for me i was like i want the Blood. sheriff's department of this this place to come to this house and riddle this bitch with bullets, <laughs> and I want you to I want a long shot of her body from top to bottom, just looking like Swiss fucking cheese, like, glorious bastard so much, just like in in some way. Yeah, like Gloria starts just like they're, they're, they're just taking chunks off her fucking face. Like, I, I, I agree, hated her. I agree partly, but I think narratively, you kind of had to have him do it himself. Yes, you know, dude, yeah, it it's makes perfect sense in that way. No, but as a fan, as like just a a movie fan, and I was just like, dude, I want him. At least I wanted him to like Pulp Fiction her. You know, like where we're here, he's like, I want, I, you know. I was just bashing bone and blood into wood at that point. <laughs> or Alex, like, Alex, like Michael Madsen. Michael Madsen dude. doing his thing to her, like pours the gasoline, cuts S- off her ear. So it's funny because <laughs> like, that's like yes. actually one aspect of the film that I think makes this just perfect, right? Because like you're you're dealing with this whole realistic story the whole time. And it like makes sense that you were just able to like barely grab this fucking paperweight pig out of it and just bang her on the head and then of course she's not going to be dead and so you get her with the typewriter but it's like this it it, it feels like almost just like this weird fucking like you're like "Mm, that wasn't like you feel stunted 
or it feels like you're plugged yeah. up still because you're like, wait, like they give you, did he give you violent blue violence blue? Exactly balls? right, and it's like he did. You're yeah. just like, no, it, I wanted you to like set her on fire and like throw her off of a cliff. In, I think like, that's indicative car. of the times, though, but dude, and of, of films of what we expect. I also from think villains. it just yeah. shows this the was limits. Pre Tarantino, you know, yeah. yeah, it shows though like the limits of his like, autonomy, which he was grappling with the yeah. whole film that he like. Like, that was a struggle, dude. That scene where he's, like, trying to fucking, like, I don't know. That whole thing, and he's dragging himself because his legs are just broken. It's like... Oh, dude, that scene ugh. when she, she uh, what do you, what do you call hobbles it? Him. Okay, so, what is it? yeah. Hobbling. Hobble, yeah, hobbles him. Yeah. Yeah. That is yeah. definitely yeah, it's a, it's a the medieval... milkshake. My milkshake yeah. like, award. Like, like <laughs> yeah, that, that scene was, I legitimately, like, like, I don't look away a lot in movies, but as the hammer Only was coming down, scenes. I was just like, uh, I don't look away during sex scenes. I just fast forward. What if we had a uh, Kathy Bates, James Conn sex scene in this? I mean, that would have taken it over the, movie. the top. That would have made it. No, like, I don't think it would have hated movie. I think it would have made it worse. Yeah, dude. I think Alex, I agree. I think that would have been disgusting. Yeah, <laughs> it would have been, just been, it like been really rape. It would have been, you would have showed a actual rape. Yeah, that would be people like would've, People would have left the theater at that Yeah, point. that wouldn't have, like, I would have left the theater. Like, that would have been fucked. You got, you got the weird sexual longing and, like, horniness from her in yeah. a crazy way enough that I felt. But she's very, like, puritanical with it, too, dude, though. That's uh, true. That's true. We could talk so, about that as well. Yeah. I could just imagine yeah, the like the that beads she, of sweat oh, running yeah. down her like inner thigh. She was like speaking Dude, to him. Fuck off. Okay. No. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, all right. And so like uh, no, but truly, going. I'm getting no. Getting truly though, with here. the idea uh, that you're saying is like she. There's this tension there, but she's very puritanical. She's like she's very, very well dressed. Anti swearing. Yes. Anti uh, anything like overtly sexual. She's she, she's very religious. You poopo head. <laughs> You dirty and she, bird. And so, but that's such you a great juxtaposition because of this like total psycho who's like breaking chairs and like <laughs> holding someone hostage, but like won't swear. <laughs> yeah, like it, it, it's so. I think almost Stephen King's taking a dig at Christianity right there, where he was just like, dude, like the like the uh, oxymoron of the whole situation. Dude, there's some of no, the dude, scariest people, people like this exist all over the place. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's just like when I go to the, the pig store, I don't say, "Give me an effing bag of pig feed." And that okay, line, Karen. Okay, Karen. That line I was so great to add in the movie because it, it encapsulates how people just don't under who just always lose the thread of narrative. Context, or even just the reality like of the world, right? It's yeah, like, he's like, he's like, we're street thugs. He's like, they're street toughs. Like we, I was, I grew up that yeah. way. Like this is how they talk. She's like, no, they don't talk yeah. like that. Like <laughs> so angry. Anything that anything that dissolves this like neatly knitted reality that she's created for herself, anything mm -hmm. that dissolves that is immediate fall into psychosis. I mean, this woman murdered children, dude. That, she murdered children. That part when he yeah. finds the scrapbook and he's sweating his balls off because he's like, I shouldn't be out here. She's at the store. <sighs> Man, it's just so, so fucking weird. So that leads me into another topic that we can touch on is set design. And it's like, I, I think the set design in this movie is fantastic. Like just the, it, it feels so lived in as what would be her house. <laughs> you have the little like hummels, the little like figurines and stuff. <laughs> you have the Everywhere. scrapbook. The detail of her like sitting there at night, like watching talk shows with a fucking gallon, like a two gallon jug of Coca Cola and like her Cheetos <laughs> just and munching away. Puffs, she was watching um, 
there was it the love connection yeah or like love no, boat or something love boat was one of those shows where you had like the three the, the, the chick chooses like from the three dudes oh man i remember those shows dude so it's funny that you say that jesse because i wrote in my notes that I appreciated this film because it used like conventional or traditional film techniques like in Stalag 17 with the light bulb mm. and the chess piece. So mm. when he fucks up the penguin and she's like, my penguin always faces Northwest. Like it's not facing Northwest today. Like, why is it it's like this? South. I'm just like, it just fills the whole house. Like you said, with like all of the little fucking kitschy trinkets that she has all around and like the just sheer craziness that she has when she like monitors Yeah, the fact that they all, they're always face yeah, due south like, or whatever. And that goes to what yeah. Jeff's saying. Like you've knitted this weird little environment in your home that the well, tiniest little vibration in it is just going to set you off the fucking rails. Like It also goes to show how sequestered she is. Yeah. Because you don't, only in a house in which you live by yourself can you maintain that type of order. If you've lived with anyone else in your life, you realize that you can't keep a tchotchke face and do south to save your fucking life. Because <laughs> people just touch shit and move it everywhere. But uh, no, it's definitely, I definitely agree that it creates this lived environment. The fact that she has a pet pig, you know, and that she's very much loves, like, I love pigs, but like that she has a, a pet that's so outside of the norm, something that is also usually. A, People who have pet pigs are also always associated with being kind of off because we all know kind of the connotation with pigs and their ability to eat things. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it's always kind of like a tongue-in-cheek reference when you talk about someone who owns a pig. And there's it, it, all these weird details about her character that aren't necessary but are totally necessary. Yeah, it fills out the world. Because when you, when you deal with... A psychopath in a cinematic space, especially when you're dealing with their lived-in environment, you need it to be a facet of them, mm -hmm. right? It needs to be a shadow of them, and that informs their person. And this movie did it, you know, fucking brilliantly, in my estimation. Oh, yeah. Um, before we get past the actors, I just want to give a little shout-out to Richard Farnsworth and his wife. I don't remember who played his wife. Um, it was Lauren Bacall. But that... No, Lauren Bacall was, was the, uh, editor. The, the the editor, yeah. and I wanted to give a shout out to to her as well. But but yeah, so the 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 sheriff and his wife, I love their little dynamic. Uh, he's yeah. like, uh, oh, it's that kind of sarcasm that spices up the relationship. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like talking about him cheating. He's like, oh, I love that you think I have that much energy. <laughs> <laughs> their dynamic was was hilarious and cute. Yes, it was. And I and I also just loved seeing Lauren Bacall. Mm -hmm. It is really cool to see her. Um, if you all don't know Lauren Bacall, starlet in the Golden Age, wife of Humphrey Bogart. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. no like Never heard that name before. The little scenes with the, the sheriff when he's like trying to figure out all this shit that's going on. He's like, oh, Paul Sheldon, Paul Sheldon. And then like he's in like the liquor store and he sees like the book or he'll like think of the line and be like, oh, she said that. Like he played such a good job of being like, a not like a movie detective like movie movie detective but more just like something's like not rubbing me the there right wasn't way. jake gyllenhaal piecing yeah. together the zodiac exactly. puzzle, right it's just basic human intuition where you're just like hmm something like doesn't something feel ain't right. right like why is she yeah. buying paper god like i don't know it's just poor richard barnsworth 
<laughs> Poor yeah. Richard Farnsworth. You knew immediately. Like I said, those Stephen King elements. You're like, ah, you're gonna die. <laughs> you poor buddy. Blasted. Yeah, did, you dude. poor buddy. Oh. <laughs> um, what do you? So, yeah. what do you guys feel about Rob Reiner as like a director generally? Have you I seen a lot of his stuff? I just pulled up his IMDb uh, and I went to uh, director. Yeah. So he did the the popular ones are like oh, Princess Bride. Yeah. Princess Bride, Stand By Me, another Stephen King yeah. adaptation, Spinal Tap, uh, A Few Good oh. Men, classic Jack Nicholson, You Can't Handle the Truth, stuff like that. I haven't seen anything he's done in 20 years, but... he oh, he's Spinal Tap 2 is in pre-production yeah, great. for 2024. <laughs> oh. He's such an interesting kind of like... I don't know, like, it's hard for me to ignore him when it comes to... Oh, he did when Harry met Sally. ...to, like, the American Parthenon, you know, of directors. Like, of the 20th, later half of the 20th century. Like, Rob Reiner wouldn't be, like, he's not Spielberg level. And I'm not, we're not talking talent, right? We're talking about just effect and, like, influence. He's just, I don't know, he's just, like... Pop culture loves his stuff. We talked about Misery getting adapted. Dude, The Princess Bride is all over the fucking place. Spinal Tap, like even Stand By Me is, in my opinion, the best Stephen King adaptation of all time. I love that movie. But it's weird because Robert Reiner is like, uh, I don't know. He never was the director that I expected like Terrence Malick or anything to take me to the, the levels of like emotion that he does. It's always just kind of like, Simple American, almost like '80s Norman Rockwell. They're, they're pretty movie movies yeah. with a yeah. kind of serious edge, you know. He's but, America's director. Yeah, it feels very. He feels very quintessentially American. His stories feel very quintessentially American. They, you know, he does his fair share of feel-good stuff, as opposed to misery as well. Right. You know, like when Harry Met Sally is an absolute rom-com class. The bucket I mean, list. Yeah. Stuff the like rom-com that. of all rom Yeah, the bucket list. I mean, while that was a shit movie, you, you, he got together, I think it was... There's Nicholson Freeman, and Freeman. Nicholson yeah. and... Yeah, wasn't there one more? I thought it was them and... Um, what's his name? There are a Bill few Murray. of those movies, man. There's like 10 of those. <laughs> yeah, but you know, like he does, he does the feel-good American fun theater... It's gonna make a billion in the box yeah. office first weekend. Yeah. I mean, that was every, I haven't even everyone heard was gonna go see it of any of these movies that he's done in like twenty years. But yeah, but yeah, well, that's because yeah, yeah, saturation. Just LBJ. He did LBJ. I've not seen that. Woody Harrelson. That. But I always think I always think about him as in South Park. My goo. Yeah. And he you know, shows up, right? Like, like in everything is his own voice, or he'll just make an appearance. Like, hey, it's Rob Reiner, and you're just oh, yeah, like, Whoa. Wolf of Wall Street is Leo's dad. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. Is. That yep. is a great, great casting. <laughs> um, yeah, the last movie that he made that I saw was probably Spinal Tap. Great. That movie. was like '84. Oh, you yeah, mean like that you just saw? Gotcha. That I've yeah, seen. Yeah. Like I haven't yeah, seen yeah. any of these movies as far as like. Um, chronologically yeah um so one more thing i wanted to touch on here before we go on to the awards and wrap it up is um how do we feel like where does this stand in the canon of stephen king adaptations you know well well, i showed my hands a little bit with stand by me yeah stand by me is just like i just think it's quintessential stephen king young american heterosexual like male relationships but this one is high um it's hard because I feel like The Shining is on its own level and its own like class. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's Kubrick. To... It's it's like a 
it's a totally different game-changing film, right? I have <laughs> to take that The Shining is The Shining. It's out I mean, there. Didn't like, Stephen King like hate on the Kubrick's version? He, anyway, he probably he did. He loved yeah. Misery yeah. though. He thought it was one of the best. Yeah. And well, of course he loved Misery because it's like this is me. Yeah, it, it seems like it's something. He seems like a guy who very much like Paul only would like someone who's like a yes man. Who's <laughs> like, yeah, sure. And I feel, very much feel Rob Reiner was like, yeah, sure, we'll do that scene exactly the yeah. way you've envisioned it. You know, whereas in Kubrick's like... He's well, going to be Kubrick. <laughs> dude, it's really hard Are with Are you talking King. to me? There's so many. There's a lot. I haven't seen this one uh, in a long time, but I thought about Secret Window with Johnny Depp. I might revisit that at some point. I don't remember it being fantastic, but I remember it being like creative and interesting. Dude, the Shawshank and the Green Mile are two ones where he goes off into his like magical realism folklore type, you know. Was Shawshank Stephen King? Yeah. Uh, are you so. sure? I believe so. Intern, look that up. <laughs> we don't I have. Know, I intern. wish we had Valmic. Yeah, it's too much to have four four. It's called well, well, the. It's a novella, and it's called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption that he wrote. Oh, okay. I did not know that was based on him. Yep, Rita. Th- yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard. It's hard with King because there's so many, and so many of them are like pretty garbo. As far as horror, though, this is definitely one yeah. It's of the top it's high ones. to middling high. Yeah, like because yeah. like he did. I mean. He does this thing where he'll like release his stories for a dollar to aspiring film students, which is fucking amazing. But then like you'll get things like The Langoliers, you know, which is like a made to TV 90s movie that was just fucking a mess. Um, right. I mean, there are also Stephen King movies that are fun. They're not. Good. Yeah, they're just fun. Like Salem's Lot is a shit movie, but it's a fun movie. Dude, I mean, same Pet with those Cemetery. new it adaptations. I don't think those yeah, are particularly exactly. good, but they're hilarious roller coasters. Yeah, of nonsense. Yeah, the soundtrack makes me want to kill myself. Dude, <laughs> Carrie. <laughs> I even. remember. Wait, no, no, no. Did Carrie. He? Yeah. Carrie's good. Uh, the what is that? Carrie and the Carrie adaptation. The newest Carrie was good too. The one, really? Um, Christine. Yeah, I liked it. The one about the car. The kid, like the nerdy kid who fixes yeah. up the car. Cujo. Yeah, there's so many, man. It's so many, dude. Cujo's a classic. Yeah. That, that's a big that's a big popular one. As far as horror goes, I will say I I think Misery is definitely up there, but I do really like Doctor Sleep, which is Oh yeah. It's a, I enjoyed it's that as well. Much newer and it's like uh, I don't know. I just think it's I think they did did that one really well. That's probably like the newest Stephen King adaptation that I was like, "Oh, I really like this." The Dark Tower was I was so excited oh, for it. Fuck dude, that. it was such trash. a mess. Like, well, you're gonna turn trash. the Dark Tower into a 90 minute trash movie? Yeah. Get the fuck out of life, my friend. Dude, that needs was... to be seven movies yeah, with a good like, director. Yeah, like, or a mini series or something. I was excited about um, the casting too, with McConaughey and Idris Elba, yeah. but I actually felt like they yeah. should have switched them. I don't know why. Idris Elba, you yeah, know, Idris Elba. They didn't want to make the black guy the dark. I know, man. right? But like, <laughs> right, the, good point. I mean. Even though it per- it made perfect sense, McConaughey should have been the gunslinger, yeah. and Elba should have been the dark man. Yeah. It should have been that way. The man but in they black. Didn't yeah. They're fucking woke Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Everything about that was a disaster. Yeah, I hope I hope I do hope we get to see a good like rendition of that in my life because it's such a wild story that you could do so much with. But it has it's to be like much, long form. Yeah. It has to be long. Yeah, it would have form. to like you're saying. It would have to be like, and I'm not even being hy- hyperbolic at all. It would have to be minimum three movies. HBO yeah. minimum, like ideally series. like a Game of Thrones sort of series. Yeah, yeah it would like have to HBO be like a, series. like a high production HBO series would be the best. Um, so we have some alternate castings that I thought were pretty interesting. <laughs> uh. One of them is Robin Williams. 
as that's an interesting as, one as Annie Wilkes I could see it. or as as Annie Wilkes yeah that's in Shaw. drag yep. that no, I could see it would have been weird yeah. I don't think so that, that would have been was, this cool. is right Dead Poet Society era he was doing serious roles I mean dude but one as, hour but as Annie Wilkes is a creepy movie no not as Annie Wilkes dumbass <laughs> that's what Alex proposed yeah, what yeah but nobody's about. actually entertaining that <laughs> okay okay but imagine that. <laughs> Another one was to. actually Tim Allen, hilariously enough. Well, again, that kind of makes sense for the time period. He was he was on and popping in 1990. Yeah. I mean, now Tim Allen doesn't make <laughs> sense, but 1990 Tim Allen, man, he's hot commodity. Yeah, I can see that. You know, home improvement. His stand-up career was probably banging at that time. Yeah, you had a lot of others, honestly, and it's we don't need to go deep, too deep into it. But like What's we said earlier. What's the most ridiculous, you think? Um... Warren Betty Let's wanted see, so to be we've it got, twice. We've got De Niro, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Morgan Freeman, no. Mel Gibson, Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Denzel. This just sounds like this Bruce just sounds, no, this is dumb. This, yeah. the, when you see these lists, these are because um, agencies and production companies. Send these are out. the people that turned it down. Yes, yeah, so that means they turned yeah, it down. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that just means the production companies just send these roles out to all yeah. major actors. Yeah, and they all. So you could say the same thing for almost every major motion picture. So there's three <laughs> here because... that I actually think would do really well that were originally asked but turned it down. Robert Redford was one. He would be a much more handsome. Paul Sheldon. I would definitely get like the sexy Annie Wilk. Like just like oh, I want to jump your. Jump your battery. There might have had to be a sex scene. Yeah. If it was Gene Hackman, <laughs> which he would have knocked the fucking roll out of the park. I think Gene Hackman oh, yeah. is one of the greatest actors yeah. of all time. I can't. I always imagine him at, at like 1990. I always see Gene Hackman as like 2000. Dude, he started Royal acting. Like bombs. He started acting when he was yeah. 36 years old. The dude was like. So he was already. Yeah. There's he hope. Was already old. There's hope for us yeah, to exactly. make something of ourselves. Came out boys. with the French Connection, the conversation, like. But Richard Dreyfus is probably the best alternate casting. Like I would, could have seen him playing a very nervous just, like Paul Sheldon, the way he plays that character like a, in uh, Jaws. You're an '80s wine mom, Alex. <laughs> I swear to no, God. No, these are the roles, you're like, though. You know who, you're like, you know what I would love to see in this role, <laughs> Rob Redford. Okay, Hell yeah. it's like it's like yeah, okay, mom. <laughs> Dude, Richard Dreyfus would have been great. 1990 would have been great. I agree. You name like three actors that like make forty-year-old like <laughs> stay-at-home moms gush. Dude, Annie Wilkes, stay-at-home nursing Annie mom. Wilkes, baby. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's do some awards and then get out of here. Um, blah blah blah. The Phil Hoffman Award for Best Performance. I mean, I wonder who. I wonder who. <sighs> she already it's, won an Oscar for yep. it. It's Moving on. Got to be Lauren Bacall. <laughs> <laughs> With that career. The one scene. <laughs> hey, she had two scenes. That's true. <laughs> Where's my author? <laughs> um, I drink your milkshake award for most memorable scene. Uh, hobbling. Hobbling? I mean, the end was pretty yeah. fucked up, too. I mean, when he sees I mean, it. No, no, I'm going to save that. I'm going to save that for the most disturbing scene. Yeah. I'd say the most memorable uh, when she asked him burn his uh, manuscript, the first version, yeah, it is interesting. Pain, That's like a really interesting, like his face, ridiculously, yeah, terrible psychological moment. I think him, yeah, like, I don't know, crawling back to the room the first time he escapes to try and like hide oh. his track. That's like what I always remember. Just like I always, I've seen the movie a million times, but I always think he's gonna get caught, right? Like, 
I'm like, dude, yeah. get in your fucking wheelchair and roll your shitty ass back to bed. Take that fucking bobby <laughs> pin. Like, you're going to, oh, I don't know. He's all sweaty while he's lying in bed and shit. Like, I love that. I think the street tough, like, like line, like I was street tough too, was only there to justify the fact that he can pick a door lock with a bobby pin. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's like it's such an unbelievably difficult thing well, to do. Well, he had a line. He's like, I've heard about this or something. What does he say, Alex? You've seen it a remember. million times. Well, what he's he like, say in that moment? Line. He like writes about how a character does that. Is that what you're saying? No, I don't, I'm asking. Oh. I'm asking oh, yeah, you. Maybe. Oh, shit. I don't remember. Okay. Well, you need to watch it again, Alex. <laughs> a million and one times. Yeah. Um, yeah, most memorable scene. I don't know, man. There's a fuck ton of them. This, I had seen, I, had, I hadn't actually seen this movie before. I don't think I said that. I've seen, like, no. scenes, but I'd never, like, sat down and watched the whole thing, which goes into the fact that we talked about, like, this movie isn't really talked about that much. It's not a movie that's crossed my path in 20 years or whatever until Alex suggested it. So, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of memorable scenes. I think I think I think they tie into the Roller Girl Award for most uncomfortable scene for me. Is like, it's just their dialogue, like the yeah. moments when she snaps <laughs> out of nowhere when he's just like, "I love everything that you've done and it's amazing, but this paper doesn't work." <laughs> And she just loses it. Yeah. She fucking loses it. I'm like, oh my God, you're dealing with an insane person here. Dude, <laughs> the way she slaps like the ream of paper down onto his legs. Oh Ugh. God. And comes back all happy go looking. Yeah. like flips her off out the window. She's like, oh, you kidder. You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> I'm so uncomfortable. I would never want to be in this position. It's a nightmare. <laughs> it's like this and prison, like my worst nightmares. Both you of know? them involve captivity. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, that, I guess that ties in. I don't know. Do you guys have a roller girl award for most uncomfortable scene? Yeah. yeah or is it just a movie? Yeah. Every time. Yeah, I'd watch like. Yeah, when he's getting his legs broke. I, 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 the whole time I watched it, I didn't believe that was going to happen. I was like, there's going to be, like, someone's going to interject. It's like, something's going to stop because his legs just healed. Dude. And it's like, it's like, and then she just snaps <laughs> him over the On bar. the She's precipice like, oh, of escape. Dude. He's like, almost there. And you're like, no, not the, the legs. The, like, sound of the wood block as she's, like, scraping it against the floor. You're like, that thing's heavy. And then she, like, lifts it up. <laughs> And like the whole demeanor that she's doing the whole time. She's like, in this time, in the mines, they would do this to make sure the miners didn't walk away with diamonds. And you're just like, what the fuck is happening? And even him, he's like, okay, Annie, I get it. Please don't. Please stop. Don't do this. And it's just so <laughs> slow. She's like making sure his foot is like all snug up against the the block and everything. And then she like pulls up the handle of the sledgehammer. And you're like, oh, Jesus Christ almighty. And then it doesn't yeah. really cut away <laughs> when it hits no. the foot. You see the fold. I like, did. I did. I cut away. Oh I God. was surprised <laughs> that they showed that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Ugh. I was surprised. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> A little bit of like true horror kind of creeping in yeah dude yeah. Richard Farnsworth getting blasted in the chest though and like he falls down the basement stairs that was like the last shred of hope that I had for Paul the first time I saw the movie I was like oh you're fucked yep. dude like the one guy That's who it. kind of had an inkling that you might have been kidnapped is see through it does do a like, great job with the hopelessness ugh. of the whole thing you know I Just could add general. to the uncomfortable 
cutscenes, um, the fact that they had the fucking audacity to flip a 65 Mustang. <laughs> I really hope that that was a prop car with a No, nah, dude, that was it. real. That shit was... Dude, <laughs> how fucking dare you? Dude, in the 90s, I feel like those how cars were like... You? They were selling those things like hotcakes, baby. And now... That was a 65 Mustang. That weren't selling those cars like hotcakes, bro. Okay? Those Dude. cars were still classics in 1990. Beautiful car. They weren't selling any. They were selling maybe the 1990 Mustang like a hotcake. <laughs> but that 65 classic hardtop... Do hotcakes really sell that well? I don't know, Jesse. I think it was the stacking imagery of the hotcakes, right? Like it would like be on a stacking, you could like fling them out to breakfast goers. That was like the Yeah, that's what we're talking about now, Jeff. Yeah. Wasting <laughs> my fucking time. What do you mean? You're on a podcast. Give up the times here. Frozen oh, banana geez. award for most comedic scene. I nominate James Conn's reaction shots. <laughs> I was gonna say every reaction shot. Honestly, I love the way she says dirty bird. Anytime she calls him Dirty Bird, I'm like, you're fucking crazy. You're insane. Her parlance. Yeah, her parlance in terms Dirty of insulting bird. people is is ridiculous. When she's, I think for me, it's um, when she's burning the manuscript and he's like, his whole world is falling apart. And she's like, oh, good heavens. Good heavens. Oh, yeah, the she's ashes. Like batting like the fire over. off the ashes. And it's like, she's like acting as if like she knocked some dust around. And yeah. this guy is like, there's like a Weber in the middle of a room <laughs> with his, his like the the piece of novel that was supposed to signify his moving on from this genre just burning. It's like not only now does he feel more trapped in this house, but now he's more trapped within his himself and this role of this person. Yeah, I like that read. Also, in terms of her language, um, the fact that she is so evangelical ties into her language use, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. good heavens, all these little things that when you, you can just connect the dots pretty easily. You're like, this is what someone like that would say. It's mm-hmm. a good, good script. Oh yeah. Um, and I think with that, we'll get out of here. Any final thoughts on misery, my friends? I think we've talked it up, man. Yeah. We've talked it up. This is a long one. Seriously. Um, yeah. Great movie. Go, go, go check it out at, uh, on Redbox. I don't know. Check it out at your local uh, video store. Your local video store. Your local blockbuster. Nicole. Go check it out. Forever. What? That's from Fear, baby. That's from Fear. I wanted to say it when when Jeff was bringing it up originally. Oh, I don't know that movie. If anyone gets the reference, doesn't doesn't work for me. I haven't seen that movie. Marky Marky Mark. I don't even know that was a movie. He carves. He carves like Reese Witherspoon's like name into his chest and like breaks like a ballpoint pen. Incredibly disturbing, movie. dude. That movie is so good. I love that movie, man. Fierce. It's pretty fucking. Now scary. I popped both your cherries. All right, that's us done for the day. <laughs> for those of you who have stuck around, thanks for listening to the Real Weirdos podcast. We're two and a half white men with English degrees talk about movies for way too goddamn long. Uh, <laughs> if you want to spam Star Trek memes at Jeff, hit us up at Real Weirdos Pod on Twitter. Or say what's up in the comments section on YouTube. We like hearing your thoughts about these films, recommendations and movies you think we'd like. And if even, even if you have a movie you want us to pitch, leave a comment about that too. Or shoot me a secret email at realweirdos at gmail.com. So until next time, be well out there in the madness. Stay weird and we'll see y'all in the next one. All right. Later, you dirty birds. My balls. Chicka chicka chicka. Now our podcast is done. 
and we have to run. We know it is sad, but we had so much fun. Don't be bereft, Jesse, Alex, and Jeff. We'll be back real soon. The real weirdos. We talk about movies for way too goddamn long. Boo, 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 boo.